morning. All right, Merry Christmas, guys. Hey, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Hebrews. So uh, if you brought your Bibles, we're going to be in Hebrews this morning. Uh, if you don't have your Bibles, there should be a pew Bible in the uh, pew back in front of you. And uh, if you turn uh, in that Bible, it will be on page 973. Um, if not, if you don't have access to either of those, uh, the text that we're going to be in today should be on the screen. Uh, so Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be this morning as we close out um, our very short um, Christmas sermon series called Home for the Holidays. Home for, for the Holidays, part three. Um, so just about to catch you up, uh, for the past three weeks, we've been doing a series called Home for the Holidays, and we've been looking at the uh, biblical story of some of the characters who were involved in the very first Christmas, in the birth of Christ. And we've looked at a couple characters already, and we'll take a look at the third and final character this morning. And what each of these characters have had in common is that they were not home for the holidays. That is, they didn't uh, get to experience uh, the very first Christmas in their home. And so first we talked about Joseph and Mary uh, not being home for the holidays. We talked about the Magi last Sunday not being home for the holidays. And this morning, we'll talk about a character that maybe you wouldn't consider, uh, that maybe isn't quite top of the mind, that maybe uh, you wouldn't think about not being home for the holidays, but he, maybe more than all of them, in fact, he, indeed, more than all of them, he was not home for the first Christmas morning. And so uh, Hebrews chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Uh, I'll ask you to bow your heads and pray with me one more time, and we'll get started. Father, we just ask for your presence now. Holy Spirit, would you please come and uh, help us to see your word and to understand your son better for all that he, he is and all that he was and all that he continues to be. I pray specifically, Father, as we look into the birth of your son and what it is that um, he said to you uh, the moment uh, that he became flesh, uh, the very moment that you sent your very uh, son, your only begotten son, into the womb of this teenage virgin girl. Father, I pray that we would marvel and see afresh the humility of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus, I pray that we would see your um, humility, your obedience, and your willingness to follow your Father's wishes um, at all cost. And so we ask that you would help us. Holy Spirit, come speak through me. Help guard my lips that I would speak that which is from you and truthful and not full of error. And so I pray for my hearers as well, that they would hear you and your word and that they would have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that would be willing to obey. We ask it in great, uh, great name of Jesus. <clears throat> Amen. So as I've said before, we've been talking about characters who are, not, who are not home for the holidays. And as we've done that, we've talked about Mary, we've talked about Joseph, we've talked about the Magi. And what I've tried to do is to help us begin to think a little bit about what it must have been like to be in their shoes. Part of my goal is to help us think about what was it like for Mary? What was it like for Joseph? What was it like for the Magi to leave their homes, likely in Babylon, and travel some 800 miles? And so hopefully what we've begun to do is put our, our in the shoes of some of these characters. And so we've asked questions. Questions like, how did Mary feel when she first felt this baby boy kick in her womb? What must have that been like for Mary? We've asked questions like, what was Joseph thinking? What must have he been feeling the moment he found out that Mary was pregnant? How did he think? How did he respond. Questions like when the Magi, what was it like when the Magi finally found the baby boy, when they finally found this young child, and when they placed their foreheads on the dirty, sticky, smelly, stable floor before King Jesus? What was it like? And so we've been asking these questions. 
And I want to ask similar questions of the person that we're going to look at today, the third person in our series who was not home for the holidays. And who do you think that person is? Any guesses? Jesus. Excellent. Jesus. And so I want to ask questions like, what was the first Christmas like for Jesus? What must have it been like for Jesus on Christmas Day? What was he thinking? What was he feeling when he stepped out of heaven, when he stepped out of endless glory, endless worship, intimate relationship and fellowship with the Father, when he exited endless worship from myriads of angels and he entered into creation and he stepped into humanity and he stepped into the womb of a teenage girl? What was it like for him? In fact, the specific question I think that our text in Hebrews will address is, what was he thinking the moment before it happened? What was he feeling? What was he saying specifically to God the Father the instant before it happened? The instant before the incarnation? The instant when God became man and took on flesh? What was it like? We get a glimpse of what it was like from the lips of the author of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 10, what we find out is that we do know a bit about what Jesus was thinking. We do know a bit about what Jesus was feeling, and we certainly know what Jesus said to the Father before the moment of the incarnation because uh, under divine inspiration, the author of Hebrews tells us. And he tells us in chapter 10 what Jesus was saying and thinking to the Father right before his incarnation. And so if you have your text, we're going to read chapter 10, starting in verse 1 through 7. Now on the text, uh, on the screen, we're going to get to it later. But in your Bibles, let's read together uh, the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 7 just to get some context. So starting in verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeatedly, endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would uh, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers uh, would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And now we come to our text. Therefore, in verse 5, therefore, when Christ came into the world, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. This is indeed God's very word. And so what we're going to look at this morning is three things, three points. If you're taking notes, jot these three things down. Dr. Mark Hitchcock, an adjunct professor at DTS, suggests that we find from this passage three reasons for the incarnation, three reasons that Jesus came down to be God with us. Number one, Jesus came to forgive verses 5 and 6. Number two, Jesus came to fulfill the beginning of verse 7. And then finally, Jesus came to follow. And so why did Jesus come at Christmas time according to this text? He came to forgive, 
He came to fulfill, and he came to follow. Let's take a look at the first one. First of all, Jesus came at Christmas time to forgive, and we see this in verses 5 and 6. And so as, as we've seen the context, what I hope you understand is that the author of Hebrews has been talking about the Old Testament sacrifice. A sacrificial system. He's been talking about the blood of, of goats and the, uh, the blood of animals, and he's been talking about the utter inadequacy of that system. He's been talking about how they don't meet it. They don't meet the cut. They don't really forgive sins. And so the issue that he's been talking about is how the Old Testament sacrifices cannot offer, cannot bring true forgiveness of, of sins. In fact, what he says in verses 1 through 4 is that those sacrifices of old, they can't make us perfect. They can't make us perfect or righteous before holy God. They're inadequate to do so. He says they can't cleanse us of our guilty conscience. When we sin, there's guilt, and those sacrifices cannot cleanse our guilt. Thirdly, he says they can't take away our sins. They can't remove our sins before holy God. And so the context of verses 5 and 6 is that the Old Testament sacrifices are not good enough. Something else, something else is needed. If God a holy God is to truly forgive sinners, of which we all are, somebody has to step up. Somebody has to step up to the plate. Somebody has to be a true sacrifice. And what we find out then in verse 5 is that Jesus steps up to the plate and says, I will be that sacrifice. I will be the one to bear the sins of all of humanity. Notice what he says in verse 5. He speaks of the Father's plan. He says, Father, this is your plan from eternity past for me to become human, for me to be the only sacrifice that can bring true forgiveness. Notice what he says in verse 5. Therefore, when Christ came into the world. That's a very important introduction because we get the context of what he's saying. When did Jesus say this? When did he utter these words? It tells us, when Christ came into the world. That is, before Jesus entered into our world, before Jesus incarnated himself, this is what he said. This is what he said the moment he stepped out of eternity, out of heaven, into the earth. And notice what he says. He says, sacrifice and offering you didn't desire. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. And so he's, as if he's speaking to the Father. Imagine the scene in heaven, if you will. Use your imaginations. The Father is seated on his throne, and the Son is before him. And the Son is saying, Father, what is your will? And the Father tells him this. And he responds to the Father by saying, I realize Father, that the myriad of these sacrifices, and he talks about four different Old Testament sacrifices, and he says, I realize that this is really not what you want. This is really not what you desire. This is not good enough to forgive human sin. But, but, but a body you prepared for me. And so he speaks to his father and he says, these sacrifices, father, I realize are not going to cut it. There needs to be a different kind of sacrifice. There needs to be a human sacrifice. There needs to be a human sacrifice for human sin and there needs to be someone to fulfill all of your law, to fulfill all of your commands, to do it perfectly and then to die. And he says, I will go. He says, you have prepared a body for me talking about the moment that he came into the world as a little baby in Mary's womb. He essentially says, those sacrifices won't cut it. Because here's the deal. 
Only a human could live in perfect obedience before God in our place. That's the righteous requirements for us to be right with God. It has to be perfect obedience, perfect uh, obedience in every area of life. And I don't know about you, but I know that I'm not perfectly obedient in every area of life. You're not perfectly obedient. In fact, no person in all of history has ever been perfectly obedient, and yet that is what God required. That's what God requires for us to be with him. And so Jesus says, you've prepared a body for me. I will become human so that I could live righteously, perfectly in their place. And not only that, he says, you've prepared a body for me so that I can give it up. You've prepared a body for me so that I can be the sacrifice to pay the penalty, both physical and eternal, for sins, that I can die in their place. And so only Jesus, only Jesus, perfectly God, perfectly man, can take away our guilt, can make us perfect, and can truly offer forgiveness of of sins. And so the first thing we see is Jesus talks to the Father before he comes into the earth, and he says, Father, I will take on a body. I will take on a body so that true forgiveness can be offered. And so number one, Jesus came to forgive. And because Jesus came to forgive, because Jesus came to forgive, we can be forgiven. And that's the first point that I want us to dwell upon. Because Jesus came to forgive, we can be forgiven. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I don't know if you've ever pondered the fact that you need forgiveness, that all of us needs forgiveness. And I'm not just talking about maybe the really, really bad things that we think in our mind that are just horrible sins. Yeah, maybe we need forgiveness of that. But what about the smaller things, the smaller sins, if you will? What about the things that nobody knows about? We all, the Bible says, need forgiveness because we are separated from a holy God and we not only do things that are wrong, but by our natures, we are wrong. (laughs) Our natures are fundamentally flawed and we need forgiveness. And so the very first thing we see is that Jesus came to forgive and the wonderful news this Christmas, the wonderful news for me and for you is that we can be forgiven and reconciled with God, made right with God through faith in the Son of God who came as a human, who took on a body to be the perfect sacrifice. But here's the deal. Jesus Christ offers forgiveness through his life, through his death, through his resurrection. He offers forgiveness of sins for anyone, for anyone who will believe in his name. But here's the catch. You have to receive it. It's something that you have to personally receive. And so I think of it in, in these terms, and it's very appropriate at Christmas time. I want you to think just for a minute about maybe uh, the best Christmas gift that you've ever gotten. Maybe it's when you were older. Maybe it's when you were a kid. Uh, the best thing that you've ever received, the, the moment you opened it up, you, you were most excited to receive this gift. Um, I've had a lot of good gifts, and so I don't exactly have one uh, particularly in mind. Uh, but Madden football comes to mind as I think about good gifts when I was a kid. I remember opening up the presents and thinking, Madden, yes, every year, new Madden. And I waited, and that's what I asked for every year. So it was somewhat predictable, but I was still very excited about that. I also think of, of the commercials that come around this time of year, and uh, they're the Lexus commercials, you know, when they're like, oh, you got me a gift, and they look out, and they're in their keys, you know, and they go outside, and it's snowing and beautiful, and there's a brand new Lexus, you know. What a wonderful gift that would be at Christmas time. Um, <laughs> My, co- my garage is that way, <laughs> you know, just think about it. It's a good gift. 
especially for a wonderful pastor. So, uh, anyway, so, you know, the best gift that you can be given, it's a gift. It's something that they purchased for you, they paid the price for you, and they're giving it to you, but it's something that has to be received. And so, it's something that I ripped up the Christmas present, and it was Madden, but I didn't just go like, wonderful, Madden is available to me, and then put it on my shelf and never played it. I wouldn't have received that gift. I wouldn't have utilized it. I wouldn't have enjoyed it. I had to personally receive it. Now, you've never received a Christmas gift, I hope, that you've said, oh, this is a wonderful gift. Thank you so much. And they said, yeah, that's 30 bucks, please. And you said, okay, here it is. You know, and you, and you give them the money. That's not how Christmas gifts work because they're gifts. Somebody else pays for it, and then you personally receive it for free. That's a wonderful, wonderful picture of the forgiveness that Jesus Christ offers. It's something that he has paid for already from his pocket out of his blood from his life it's 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 a it's a gift that's wrapped in blood that Jesus Christ offers to you that you can have forgiveness of sins reconciled relationship with God but here's the catch guys oftentimes it's easy for us who maybe have grown up in church or maybe we have some kind of Christian background and we're like yeah Jesus came to forgive us Jesus wants to forgive me but we don't comprehend this idea that it's by faith and it's by trusting in what he's done and so essentially we have to take that gift and we have to unwrap it and we have to enjoy it personally and so as we wrap up point number one that Jesus came to forgive I want to ask you has have you taken that gift Have you received the gift of forgiveness of sins that is wrapped in the blood of the Savior, of the baby boy, and personally opened it and taken it and received it for yourself and been forgiven and been born again and made new? And if that's the case, if you've never personally done that, if you assent to it, if you're like Madden, wonderful, and you put it on the shelf and you never use it, that's like saying, thank you, Jesus, you offer forgiveness, but I'm not gonna personally take it. If that's you, then the most important thing that you can do this morning and this holiday season is to accept the gift of forgiveness of sins and right relationship with God that Jesus has purchased and offers to you all because he said, a body you have prepared for me, I will become the sacrifice for sins. And so number one, first thing we see about Jesus is that he came to forgive. Secondly, not only did he come to forgive, he came to fulfill. He came to fulfill. Notice the very first part of verse 7. Let's just read it together very quickly. Then I said, and so Jesus is saying this, then I said, here I am, here I am, and notice, it is written about me in the what, church? In the scroll. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And so Jesus essentially says, I will take a body on. I will become human. I'm here. I'm available to your request, Father. And it's written about me in the scroll that I would do this. Now, what is he talking about? Back in those days, uh, the Old Testament was not like nicely printed and bound like we have ours today. No, they were kept in the scrolls. And so Jesus is saying, not only am I coming to forgive, I'm coming to fulfill. I'm coming to fulfill prophecy. I'm coming to fulfill all of what the Old Testament meant and pointed to. It's about me. Specifically, there are tons of prophecies about the coming of Christ, about the Messiah would take on human flesh and he would become the Son of God, the Messiah. In fact, over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, and that's conservative. There are probably more. Over 300 promises. Wrap your mind around that. Over 300 promises God has given in the Old Testament that Jesus, taking on a human body, fulfilled 
in his incarnation. Upwards of 350, one person suggests. And so Jesus essentially says, not only am I coming to forgive, but all of the promises that God has made, all of the promises that people were awaiting, all of the promises that people wanted so desperately, I am God's fulfillment of them. And so God can be trusted. And so because Jesus came to fulfill for you and I, what does that mean? Well, it means because Jesus came to fulfill that we can trust God's promises. That's what that means. Because Jesus came to fulfill all of God's promises about him, that means that all of God's promises are true, that they are trustworthy, that they can be trusted, that we can believe in them because God made good on all of the promises about the Messiah. God will also make good of all of his other promises to me and you. Now, there are many, many promises that God offers to us, primarily in the New Testament. Uh, I just want to list five of them for you, and there are many. But these five especially stand out to me, and maybe they'll stand out to you. But the question that I want to pose to you is, what promises from God do you need to believe in? What promises do you need to bank on? What promises do you need to trust during this period of time? Maybe it's one of these. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 God says through Paul, and my God will meet all of your needs, all of your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Maybe that's a promise this morning that you need to believe in. How about Philippians 4, a little bit earlier, verses 6 and 7. Don't be anxious about anything, anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and here's the promise. If you do this, verse 7, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. So maybe you're worried. Maybe you're anxious. Maybe this is a promise this Christmas that you need to believe in. How about Romans 8.28? It's a mysterious one, but it's a helpful one. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose and contextually Our good is that we become like Jesus Christ. And so in all things, God wants to make us into the image of Christ. How about Galatians 6, 9? Maybe this one is one you need to claim. Let us us not become weary in doing good. Maybe you're tired of doing good. Maybe you're tired of doing the right thing in your marriage, with your kids, at your workplace. Maybe you're growing weary of doing that which is right. Let us not become weary of doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Again, Philippians 4, wonderful chapter. I can, do, I can do anything through him who gives me strength. Finally, James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Maybe there's a decision that you're facing, and you need wisdom from God. That's a promise that you can claim. There are literally hundreds of promises that God gives to his people and what I want us to see is that Jesus not only came at Christmas, Christmas time to forgive us, he came to fulfill all of God's promises. And because he did, we know that God keeps his promises. Because Jesus came to fulfill, you and I can trust in God's promises. Finally, what else did Jesus come for at Christmas time? He came to forgive, he came to fulfill, and finally, he came to follow. And this is amazing to me. But let's read verse 7 again. It shows us that Jesus came to follow the Father's will, the Father's desires. Then I said, here I am. Now that is a phrase 
of submission, is it not? Jesus says, you are gonna prepare a body for me. You want me to become human. You want me to take on the humanity that I created myself. Here I am. Is that not a statement about Jesus following the Father? Here I am. It's almost like he says, God, Father, whatever it is that you want, it's yours. Whatever it is that you want me to do, I will do it. He says, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. Notice, I have come to do my will. No, it doesn't say that. Jesus didn't say that. He says, I've come to do what, church? Your will. I've come to do your will, my God. And so Jesus says, if you want me to become human, I'm yours. I will do your will. And it's interesting, as you read through the Gospels, especially in the Gospel of John, there are several, several scriptures where Jesus says, hey, I only do what the Father wills. The Father is doing work, I'm doing my work. If the Father tells me to speak, then I speak. I've only come to do the Father's will. I've not come to do my own will. And remember this, remember this when he's in the garden and he's praying and he's facing the cross and he's facing torture. He's facing hallucinations. He's facing extreme blood loss. He's facing horrific things beyond imagination. But even above and beyond that, he's going to face the wrath of his very father. He's going to face the wrath and the holy anger of his father against the sin of all humanities, but not his. And in that moment, he's wrestling. And what does he say? He says, if there's any way that this cup can be taken from me, but not what? Not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus, in his life, in his ministry, came to follow the Father. He came to follow the Father, and he makes himself available to God. You want me to become human? Yes, I will do it. Um, Those of you who have been fathers or mothers, this counts. Uh, As a father, one of the joys uh, that I that I get in parenting is seeing your kids being obedient. And not just being obedient because you want them to be obedient, but genuinely heartfelt obedience to you out of love and respect from, from you, right? And so parents, this is a wonderful thing, is it not? And so for my two-year-old, it's a wonderful thing when I ask him, Asher, go pick up your toys, or Asher, stop hitting your sister, or Asher, whatever, you know. I I make a request of him. I make a command of him. I say, this is what I want you to do. And sometimes his response is, and this is kind of his, his typical response, sometimes he says, yes, my daddy, That's what he calls me, my daddy. I love it. Yes, my daddy. Yes, my daddy. And and so it's a wonderful thing when I say, Asher, please do this. And he looks at me, and I can tell he's not doing it begrudgingly. He wants to please me. He wants to follow my will. Yes, my daddy. That's a wonderful thing. Now, sometimes I get, why? Actually, most of the time I get, why? (laughs) Asher, do this. Why? Asher, do that. Why? Asher, do that. I don't want to. Now, that happens too, right? And those of you who are parents know that that's the way it goes. Sometimes you don't get that, but it's sweet and wonderful when they say, yes, my daddy, I will do that. This is what Jesus was doing. This is Jesus's, yes, my daddy, to the Father's request that he would become human. And so Jesus came to forgive, he came to fulfill, and he came to follow. He came to follow the will of the Father. He came to say, Yes, my daddy, at the moment of incarnation and for the rest of his life. And so because Jesus came to follow, we can follow too. Because Jesus came to follow the Father, he enables us 
to live a life of following the Father as well. Because what Jesus did is he came and he lived a perfect life so that we can receive that righteousness. He came and he died for our sins so that we can be forgiven. And when we believe in him, when we trust in him, the Bible says that we become then children of God. And so we too can look at our Heavenly Father and say, this is what you want me to do? This is your request of me, God? Yes, my daddy. That's what I'll do. And so I want to ask you, is that the tenor Is that the tone, is probably a better word, is that the norm, is that the attitude of your heart towards God? Is that what you say when you're reading scriptures and there's something that he asks of you and you look up and you say, yes, my daddy, that's what I'll do. Is that that what exudes out of your heart? When you come to make decisions, big decisions, small decisions, reactions to kids, reactions to spouses, reaction to people who aren't nice to you, in any scenario and in every situation, do you think and do you try to respond with, Father, what would you will? What do you desire? How should I obey you here? What is it that you want from me in this response? And then say, yes, my daddy, I will do that. I will do that. One of the things that God has been working uh, on me lately and uh, learning to follow him and his will is uh, dealing with kids that aren't sleeping well. And I'm sure you have kids that don't sleep well and probably worse than mine, so I don't mean to complain. But it's something that I struggle with is getting up oftentimes in the middle of the night and having a good attitude about it. Now, I I get up, (laughs) but having a good attitude about it is another thing. And yet I come across God's will for me in this circumstance in Philippians 2.14 where God says, do everything, do everything without complaining or arguing. And I'm like, everything? Does that really, does that even mean at 3 a.m. when I have to get up tons of times with my kids that I can't complain just a little bit? Father, is that, is that your will, my father? And then I read, do everything without complaining. And so the question is, is my heart say, yes, my daddy, I, I will do that with your help. Please help me to do that. I had a conversation with a, a couple in our church, and I'm going to be really general, but they had a question for me, and the question was about a particular event that was happening and something that they were going to participate in, and they, they wanted to know, is this right? There was a question, is this right or is, it, is this wrong? Is this God's will or is it not God's will? And it was so utterly refreshing because what I heard from their lips was, Pastor, what does the Bible say? What does God say about this? Does God say yes? Does God say no? Essentially what they were saying was, what's God's will? We want to follow him. We want to say, yes, my daddy, what is it that you will? And so I want to ask, is that your heart attitude? Is that my heart attitude? Because Jesus came to follow, we can follow too. I want to wrap up this sermon by reading a short portion of a chapter of a book. I don't know if you're familiar with an author by the name of Max Lucado. He's a pretty big deal in the Christian world, and he's, he's written a book called God Came Near, and it's a Christmas book. It's a wonderful book, and he writes, he writes about the moment of the incarnation. In fact, he writes about the moment that we're seeing here in Scripture where Jesus said, a body you've prepared for me, here I am. So I want to read this, and my prayer is that it would make us be in awe and in wonder and lead us to worship Jesus, because he is willing to do this. So I'll just read. Speaking of the incarnation, he says, It all happened in a moment, a a most remarkable moment, which was like none other. For through that segment of time, a spectacular thing occurred. God became man. While the creatures on earth walked unaware, divinity arrived. 
Heaven opened herself and placed her most precious one in a human womb. The omnipotent, in one instant, made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to depend upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God had come near. It all happened in a moment, in one moment, a most remarkable moment. The word became flesh. Let's pray. Father, we're